0: The Urban Broadcast Collective brings
1: together the best podcasts on cities
0: and urban life.
1: Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VIPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. This is PX62 today, and it's a day of many firsts. Our first interview with three people and our first interview with a group of young planners from local government. We have Jacob Martin from City of Yarra, Nicole Neem from Bourbon, and Callum Douglas also from Bourbau. So rather than me introducing each of our guests, I thought it would be best if each of them introduced themselves. So Nicole.
2: Hi, Jess. So I've been working as a strategic planner at Borborshire for 12 months now. Before that, I was working in consulting, doing community engagement and social impact assessment after graduating in 2017 from RMIT. Fantastic. Jacob.
1: Um, So I've been
0: working at the city of Yarra now for almost two years. I started as the student planner um, and sort of graduated up to regular planner. Regular Um,
1: planner. yeah. And Callum?
3: Um, like Jacob, I started off at Borbore Shire as a student planner. Uh, and I have been working at Borbore for the past two years. Um, uh, worked up from student planner into a uh, band five.
4: Wow, Jess, impressive. Impressive. These are young planners. And one of the reasons we want to interview them is because they're just newly minted planners just out of uni. They've had enough experience to know they've gone through that transition period, Jess. Um, So it's a delight to have them here and hear their experiences because I imagine all our listeners, especially the older ones like me, look back on those times very fondly, but they were a time of almost like adolescence, I would think. Mm. Okay, let's get to it. So can you tell us all briefly about the features of your council uh, area and what type of work you do then, Nicole?
2: Um, So Callum and I are both from Bobo Shire, so it's a peri-urban council in West Gippsland. Um, There's a lot of growth happening there, a lot of population growth happening there, so there's lots lots of changing community needs. Um, There's also quite significant pressure on agricultural land there as well. So um, I've been working on... so I've actually been part of the strategic planning team for about three months, and prior to that I was a statutory planner for nine months at Borbore Shire. So the work is, is very, very diverse, being that we've got population growth, we've also got a lot of agriculture, then we have um, in- industry. There's, there's a lot happening at Borbore at the moment.
1: And how big is the council, the council area, I should say?
2: Council area? County. I Not off the top of my head,
3: unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I would say that about half of it, sort of the northern part of our shire, is mostly um, state forest. Okay. Um, but it's, yeah, we're sort of down south is the Strislaki ranges. Mm-hmm. Then along the highway and train line, we have our main towns, um, so Warragul, and then down to Yarragon and Traff, and then as you go north, you get into the more um, sort of isolated communities. So you've got your uh, Nuge, um that most people pass through when they go off to Mount Borbore, um, and we also um, have uh, sort of isolated areas of Rawson and uh, Wahala, so this town of Wahala that's up in the uh, mountain ranges.
4: And, and, Jacob, tell us about the city of Yarra.
3: So Yarra is sort of the, it's,
0: it's pretty substantially different. It's a um, sort of geographically small inner city council. Um, it's sort of known probably primarily for heritage. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of heritage row houses um, and old factories. Um, and so a lot of sort of the planning um, is around that.
4: It's a classic inner city location where you've got Lots of old houses that were once like slum dwellings. Yeah. Now they sell for multiple yeah, millions, millions. and millions. And it had a big manufacturing base, and that's essentially gone now. Mm. But it's highly desirable because it's close. It's got excellent public transport, yep. parks. It's got everything. Mm.
1: And lots of redevelopment of, um, of former factory sites as yeah. well.
0: Lots of like, pretty heavy residential um, and sort of mixed-use
4: development it's highly sought after. Now, yeah. let's get into the interrogation, Jess. <laughs> so, I was taught to copy, not think. True or false? Nicole?
2: I'm going to go with false.
4: <laughs> Tell me why that's not true.
2: <laughs> I, I think it's not true because I think study really did help me develop critical thinking skills. I think the caveat to my false is that the academic approach of those um, skills may not be as easily adaptable in the work environment but I, I do think I was taught to think
4: how hard is it for a young planner to challenge the status quo do you think in policy development
2: I think um, I think quite difficult being that you're you're still finding your feet and building your knowledge so it's um, you can maybe come at it at a bit of a slower pace whereas people that have got sort of 10 15 20 years experience are able to um, challenge that status quite much quicker
4: now jacob you've got uh you're a stat planner yes Uh, so you've got templates you've got checklists that i do are you taught to copy or think i think in some respects you sort of
0: have to think and then copy afterwards so the first time you sort of encounter some situation um then you you think about it you do your sort of assessment of that and then you can sort of use that as a basis for the same thing further down the line. Um, but I think generally, you, you have to think pretty hard about most um, things that you get, especially when the context is so different, um, just at different
4: places in the municipality. Now, Callum, Jacob doesn't know about diversity, you do, because you work in a rural area, you work in a town and country, you've got all sorts of applications.
3: Um, yeah, so obviously, um, with such a diverse range, you end up with something different quite often. So I have definitely learned that you have to think, um, and I've always sort of really felt like that because even the smallest thing a part of an application can really change the complete outcome. You can go from having something that you think is quite minor. You think it's going to be, you know, really simple. You can get it out really easy. And then something comes up and, um, next thing you know, you're dealing with a, angry customer or an objector or having to deal with some sort of covenant and that can be quite, you know, potentially challenging but also fairly interesting in all the different approaches.
1: Mm. So how has your, I guess, your expectation of working differed from the reality? I'll throw that to anyone who wants to answer it.
2: So I was pretty open-minded when I started out. I, I really didn't have set expectations of mm what I was going to experience and what the work was going to be. Um, My expectations probably coming into or out of study and into work though was maybe it was going to be a smoother transition than it was. I think you do some really great things in university but what the expectation of you to be maybe a bit more versed in a particular skill set once you're actually in the workplace, there's a bit of a disconnect there.
4: Nicole, I remember when I started, I was pretty hopeless when I started and, and I used to think, I've got no idea. How do these I look I would look at awe at the older people thinking, oh my God, I, I'm so stupid. It's gonna take me forever. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I made mistakes. Yep. But my mentors were really good. Mm-hmm. They used to just tear up my reports and say, How could you write that? I'm like I come from old school, right? Not like <laughs> you guys. Right, you know, but they would tear up. And say, how, c- how can you write this? You can't make these assumptions. Do it again. <laughs> yeah. You, you say
0: that's old school, but it's still um, that's it pretty similarly mirrors the experience I had when I started. Yeah, I'd get I'd write a report and then hand it off, and it would come back these like blue text in all the margins. Things are highlighted. Don't put this here. You can't talk
3: about that. So. Um, I'd say my experience was also somewhat fairly sim- similar. Um, I had a particular mentor who was um, had a bit of a views and a bit turbulence um, relationship with the planning I think he'd um, said he'd told me that he'd quit planning about two times already but he keeps coming back um, <laughs> so having that sort of person sort of come in basically going you know you're gonna make mistakes here's how you do things and um, that was yeah sort of just, Know, had someone basically come in like, "No, this is this is how planning works, really."
4: And, and what surprised you? And uh, this is an open mic session, so you just jump in and grab a mic. But what surprised you? Look, I don't know if this is something that's
0: like unique to a local council or the way it's done um, in terms in stat planning. Um, but I was under this imp- impression at uni that everything would be very collaborative and that there'd be one application and there'd be eight planners at the council all working on that one thing, but in reality... No, um, Nicole, you're
4: nodding
2: your head. Yeah, I am nodding my head, but I, uh, yes, I but, think. But that
1: yeah. would be slightly That's different in strategic, I imagine, as well. You might have a few more people working on one project.
2: Um, yes, at, at times. At times, yeah. So yeah. But um, generally, it's more like the eight projects and one person working yeah. on it rather than... Well, resourcing is a massive
1: sure. issue yeah. as well in local government. It has so, been Jacob, you were just lift.
4: So you just left to make these files work. I
0: don't know if I was just left to make it work, but it's more sort of a matter of I. Uh, it, it makes sense that you would have one person dealing with one application. You know, they know the whole context. You can't—you know—there can be a miscommunication between one person. Um, so I understand why it, 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 things are set up the way they are. Um, I just didn't expect it to be that way.
4: And you're dealing with a very well-educated. Client, I hate the word client, yep. because, you know, or customer.
0: Re- so, like Callum, they're not
4: customers. I'm not a customer when I lodge an application. I hate that term. But anyway, sorry, I digress. But you're, you're dealing with people who are very sophisticated in your very yeah. rich, very knowledgeable, mm-hmm. not like what Callum has to deal with in the country. but <laughs> but So, you have to be on your toes all the time.
1: Few assumptions. But
4: <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, there definitely are
0: a lot of residents that are very well informed and know how the process works and know that
3: you know, we all know able what to anticipate your moves for. a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i would say in regards to i guess the applicants is what we call them in the country um it can be a bit of a mix of whether how like in regards to their knowledge and stuff um there would be some times where you get a sort of application and some of the potential objections or who you're dealing with they really don't understand planning at all and you sort of have to maybe guide them a bit through it um, but then you get sort of other times where you maybe get an applicant that really actually gets knows what they're quite doing so there might be just farmer Joe but farmer Joe knows what like how to actually you know put in the application and do all that kind of stuff and you can be get quite surprised with what potential objections you might get from some people in the community that can actually be quite, knowledgeable about um, like the policies and stuff that you have in council.
1: So through the conversations that you have had with the community in your current roles, um, what techniques have you developed in communicating with them? Has there been certain things that you've had to respond to?
3: Uh, I'd say I, in a sort of rural sort of sense, um, like as I spoke about before, sometimes they just don't understand like mm. why they sort of have to apply and stuff. So. What I've found is it's best to sort of, I guess, guide them through them and sort of explain. You do do a bit of, um, oh, it's the state government's fault; they didn't <laughs> the planning scheme. Um, but you sort of have to go through and explain. You know, this is the outcome it's trying to achieve. Um, explain sort of the, like what you essentially do in your role. I'm um, saying, so, you know, like, hey, this is <clears throat> the process. This is what you really need to do. Um, and sometimes, like especially when you get sort of just like your mum and dad applicants, and they can be quite um sort of sometimes really complicated um sort of stuff depending on where they're doing it like it could be you might have like five overlays on it and something like that like you have to get all these reports and sort of sitting down actually them. like hey this is what they do and sometimes they're fairly trusting in what you like what you ask for and how to go through it um I think it's always best to give people I guess options and be open and stuff mm. like that I've always found that probably the best way to deal with most applicants
2: and there's a bit of an education piece, I think, as well, because there is such a lot of transition happening in Boree There's There's um, with with this transition and change, people are having to lift their standards, I guess, of applications and what they're providing for the, for those um, types of planning responses. But I think, in terms of communication, I've always found empathy has been a really important thing, particularly in planning these um, issues of are going to potentially have a big impact on somebody's life and livelihood. So you... It's a very Empathies. emotional yeah.
1: um, time for people, I think, particularly when they're going through a planning application process and yes. you know, they just want to develop their land in the way that they think they should be able to develop yeah. it. Yeah. And when you've got someone saying no, you, know, you do quite often, I think, bear the brunt of that response, which I was going to ask Jacob about in particular okay. um, yeah. at Yarra. How has that been for you? I think,
0: especially with sort of mom and dad applicants, there's a lot of... The view is oftentimes that it's red tape and that it's a process that they're being made to go through. So often there's a lot of reluctance to sort of work with you to do anything because you're sort of your counsel and you're the bad guy. And And
1: you're costing them money. Yeah. And time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But then ironically often, there are people not wanting to cooperate and not wanting to work with you often makes things take a lot more, mm. a lot yeah, greater time.
3: I would say probably the, Nicole could probably test to this is probably our most controversial sort of applications are the ones where people apply for dwellings in the farming land. Um, so we have a fairly strict policy where you have to provide like farm management plans um, and you can end up in positions where you basically go, no, like, no, no, we're not gonna support this, not gonna do anything like that. Um, and so you've basically got, you know, big back council basically coming on going, no, your dream, no, you're not allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for those sort of conversations, it's, it's, as you said, with the empathy, it's a bit hard because you just like, you no know, it's like a no-no sort of situation. Yeah, uh, you
1: can't negotiate around no. that. No. Yeah.
4: With that whole f- dwellings in a farming zone, it's a real mixed bag. And I think that um, planners at councils, Um, and I was working for a council way out west, where we didn't have that problem. I mean, the farms were huge, west of Horsham, and no one wanted to live out there. Um, But in a lot of the peri-urban places where Baw is and, and other places, Hepburns, the zoning is really dumb. It doesn't distinguish between productive farming land and then you've got lots with, say, two hectares, which are very small, never going to be used for farming, but the policy says no. And it's very hard as a planner to to give coherent reasons. So I think there's, the state government needs to really step up with that. I think, Nicole?
2: Yeah, I think that can be a really difficult conversation to have and, mm-hmm. and for us can sometimes end up in VCAT as well um, if there are refusals on that basis. And we do struggle with that in Borbo because we do have very highly productive agricultural land is the... Yeah, is the the struggle that we do have in trying to, to retain that and have consolidation, but yeah, appreciating that smaller lots are unlikely to be farmed.
3: Yeah, and I think there's also a bit of, uh, I'd say somewhat anecdotally lately, um, we're getting a bit more coming in, I guess, from the, the impact from people who are moving out of um, a lot of the growth areas in um, sort of metro melbourne they're sort of going hang on you know all of our neighbors are basically getting subdivided into these massive residential subdivisions so they're actually moving out to our area so then we get into that sort of issue where we're getting a lot more and then um i guess there's also sometimes a bit of conflict between people coming in and then the existing Um, so anecdotally i've you know heard people coming into council and going, you know, why did you approve this? This is an absolute ridiculous idea for our farming land sort of situation. And then It's you got-
4: very hard to get the right balance, Chess. Mm. Definitely. Now, now, what surprised you? Um, you, know, you what, what, sorry, what have you changed your minds on? Now, the last person we asked you said they hadn't changed their mind about anything. So, <laughs> so over to you. What, what have you changed your mind on?
0: Yeah, I, I'm going to be boring as well. Um, I don't think I've changed my mind on much. Um, oh.
4: But But I'm I'm too young to be boring, Jacob. Well, I don't know.
0: Maybe I was too cynical beforehand, Um, but, yeah, I think my expectations pretty much matched um, what what I do now, basically.
1: Well, that's good because that's not often a common response. Well, it does kind of
0: get beaten into you at uni that, oh, hey, when you're a stamp planner, you are the bureaucrat that, you know, assesses people's front fences, Um, which is not necessarily always the case, Um, but, yeah.
2: I think I came to it with a very open mind, so I didn't have sort of this is this is what I think it will turn out like, so I didn't have a lot to change my mind about. But I probably have been more informed about my position to be able to influence as a planner. I think that's... a great yeah. responsibility. Yeah. Mm.
3: yeah I, Come on, Colin. <laughs> Help us out. No, I, I think I was a bit um, similar to Nicole, quite open-minded. But I think as I've gone through it, I've been... I suppose, I don't know, a bit more sympathetic to, say, developers. I think somewhat in uni, we had a, a bit more of a, you know, the um, yeah, a bit, uh, it was a big bad developer sort of situation in regards to it, but I know there are some times we're sort of sitting there um, in some applications thinking, hang on, this is actually quite reasonable and the objections or something we're getting are completely just off the charts. Um, sort of situation and that can potentially be for some um, applicants quite like distressing and stuff like that so they might not even go through with it if it yeah it can be yeah uh, take quite a toll on them like for us it's a you know nine to five every day sort of situation but for them it can be quite you know a significant yeah impact on their lives.
4: Now this is um, a question you've both well sorry you've you've all grown up uh, maybe Nicole Tell me if I'm wrong, but you, you, you've you've all grown up with the net. Uh, how Does anyone
1: sh- call it the net anymore? Sorry, sorry, <laughs> the, the World Wide Web.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the World Wide Web. Sorry, W. You've all grown up with the the, the internet, <laughs> Jess. Can you imagine what has this shaped you? Uh, and can you imagine life pre net or internet?
0: Um, oh. Look, I, I'm not sure that. You know, my experience will be vastly different from somebody born, you know, 10, 20, 30 years before me. I mean, it's not like, perhaps like something that I've noticed is that I'll, you know, if we have, if I'm sitting around with people and we want to, we, somebody says, you know, oh, did you know that this, this happened? Um, The sort of first response is to go, oh, okay, and then get out your phone and, you know. Or, oh, hey, how do you think this works? Oh, I don't know, let's sort of check. Um, But I, um, yeah, look, I don't think there's anything special about people that have been born in the last...
1: What about in terms of your job, though? I mean... Um, I, I, I guess when I first started, which wasn't necessarily that long ago, mm. um, we were still using. <laughs> don't laugh. Um, we were using paper planning schemes still. Mm. So I think even that transition in planning into digital has been pretty massive. I think it's
0: easier to get access to things. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Like we don't have to sort of all crowd around the one planning scheme. Like yeah, everybody can. Everyone has access to that. Yeah, maybe it's better for the public. Yeah, I was gonna Um, say the same thing. Yeah. yeah, potentially easier for people to- If they can interpret it. That's true. And that's another, (laughs) another. uh,
4: What about you um, Nicole, do you think, how does that?
2: Um, I think definitely in a work environment, it has changed um, with emails and access to social media and things like that for for applicants, for objectors. I think it really would have changed the landscape of planning in that way.
4: Does that ease of accessibility of people to you Drive you a bit mad? It drives me a bit mad. How people can email you and they expect you to get back straight away.
2: Yes, I think time management and sort of slotting out time in the diary has just become more and more important. when Especially if you've got reports due and that might be delaying your ability to finish that do you have report. Do periods? Yeah, like, you do. Yeah, okay. so self-imposed yeah. <laughs> to
3: do it. <laughs> and I, yeah, definitely. I think nowadays, I think it's sort of everyone has sort of been changed by the net like as in growing up um, we didn't really I didn't really have necessary access to the internet till I was maybe in high school but I think everyone nowadays has been like really sort of I guess transformed like socially wise like my parents have Facebook accounts and stuff like that and like when I was in high school that'd be just ridiculous to think about um, when we were sort of like the I guess you know first getting out and having that sort of thing so I think Definitely, um, a lot of people coming, a lot more, I guess, tech savvy um, and stuff. Like everyone now has streaming services and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. even Pete has Facebook. One thing
4: surprises <laughs> me, Jess, is that I mean, we've got so much access to everything, except a lot of poli- except a lot of councils have restrictive access to their files, which is ridiculous. But I mean, Jacob, you and Yara, you should be able to look up and see what they're doing across the river in the other inner, inner city areas and see what they're doing and learn from them but it seems like they're all little principalities or am I being too harsh? I think Come on I do agree with you to some extent
0: come on, um, come on, I think minutes. look <laughs> I think YARA in particular were pretty open with a lot of files like if you want to come and
4: oh, Not so much that but you seeing what say Port Phillip are doing or and you know just getting hold of that information to inform what to better what you're doing,
0: hmm? you're not. Wrong. I mean, there is some. Obviously, each council has different local policies, same, so same. it's not necessarily always the. You know, it's they're not. All
4: ne- they're all negatives anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you, you're not wrong. Like I recently, we had sort of a bit of an argument about how to interpret some signage policy, um, and basically, I was a set. My coordinator told me, "Hey, call up other councils and see." What their, what their take on it is. Um, but obviously when you're calling other councils, um, unless you know somebody there, you're gonna be talking to the person, the, you know, the person that's at the same level as me, um, that's working the phone that just doesn't want, wants to get you off their back as soon so as possible.
1: Do, do councils collaborate very much? Is that something that you've uh, seen? Uh-huh.
3: Oh. I know for Gippsland, um, we do something called Gipps Forum. Okay. Um, so that's where all the Gippsland councils get together and, um, yeah, it's so, so DELP, our, like, um, Gippsland DELP is there, and we also have the referral authorities um, for our yeah. region. So we all sort of come in, and um, generally it's sort of hosted by one of the councils. Um, so one of the councils hosts, so I think the last time, the last one we went to was the La Trobe one. Okay. So we got to hear about, you know, all the stuff they've been up to and whatnot, and um, I guess know collaborating and um, having talking to other planners Mm -hmm. so yeah kind of helps when you like might think of oh, maybe this person from another council I spoke to at that can help me out so yeah I think there might be a
0: failing of sort of the lack of clarity in a lot of cases like it I don't know that it should be the case that different councils can have different interpretations of state policy
1: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
4: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
1: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au Now,
4: does does planning policy reflect adequately, in, in any of your opinions, the new urban reality influenced by the digital age? Big question, big essay topic. I really calm
3: yeah I really believe that it probably maybe needs to be more flexible in its regards to uses um, I don't know now like people generally like working home work at home and have their own businesses at home and stuff like that but I guess that's really in the planning scheme I think potentially there could be a um, bigger shift in the future with you know self-driving cars and VR and stuff like that I know now um, people have sort of the flexible work hours and stuff and I've you know anecdotally people like I really don't want to work at home. I'd rather get in my car or, you know, get on the public transport and actually go to the office and work with other people in my field than to be stuck at home, you know, sitting on a laptop in a study or something like that. Um, but, you know, there is potential for, you know, big dis- disruption with how VR and stuff. Um, I know recently there's been a really interesting development for VR in South Korea where the this company brought back <laughs> um, oh, the dead person yeah the dead person was like a, oh. yeah mother lost her child and they uh, spent like two years to like recreate her daughter and stuff and it was they, they like televised it on the television it's like yeah, yeah. it's really like it looks like an episode of Black Mirror it's quite surreal looking at it so. so so
4: they had they had a lot of images of the young girl who died and then they made it made a avatar basically yeah. of her, and then the avatar was speaking to her uh, parent and that's how we remember death. And we've talked about this previously, remember, Jess, on, on remembering death. Anyway, we'll move on. We don't <laughs> want to talk about that too much. Now, you hinted, one of you hinted before about the disconnect between academia and what we might describe as the practising world of planning. Um, you've recently made the transition. Do you, do you think that's true, that there is a disconnect? And that's probably not unrealistic to expect some disconnect, I think, to be fair. Well, the purpose
1: you. of study is very different to what working is, you know. There, I think there is a disconnect there.
4: Yeah, I think I agree.
0: Like, I don't think... I didn't go to uni expecting to learn how to do a pl- planning an application. You yeah. do a res code assessment. Yeah. Um, and I think that what you do learn at uni is important context, really, for what you are actually doing. And I think it's hard that you can't do a planning... G- given how broad planning is, exactly. I think if you're going to do a planning degree... Um,
1: it would go for about 20 years to learn everything. Yeah,
3: um, yeah. Yeah, I'd probably agree with Jacob in regards to the, um, given the context and stuff. And I'd say that I guess the bit of the disconnect is in regards to more of a strategic side of things about getting those sort of policies and stuff in the planning scheme, um, whether it be like active transport or, you know, um, yeah, uh, more pedestrianisation and stuff like that. Um, and then I think it gets into the space of using, having academia, and then convincing politicians and the public that it's a good idea. So that's probably the, I guess, the main barrier between academia research and it being implemented in um, policy.
2: I agree. I think there is a disconnect as well. I've, I agree that the purpose is different, but I think there could be, a, in my experience, there are, a better transition between. Um, sort of what's expected in the workplace and then what you did experience at university my experience has been that there would be just assume that you could just move through and and take on those very complex planning applications where you haven't been provided with all the information that you need and things like that which is the opposite of at university you're presented with a beautiful planning application with all the all the information that you you need to assess that um, so i think it's there's a disconnect, and maybe there could be a bit of balance on both sides.
4: That's a good point, that grittiness of the whole jobs that you do, and that it's not a perfect uh, world we deal with. None of us are perfect, but mm-hmm. I mean, we have to deal with situations that, don't go, that go awry, as you were saying before, and also dealing with people is, that, that people management skills I think you learn on the
1: job. Mm, I don't yeah. think you can teach that at uni. So, so, um, as we were talking about before, as statutory planners and strategic planners, our working lives are really directed by policy. Are there any areas of planning policy that you would like to see reformed and why?
3: I could probably say that in my experience, I think having it be more in policy regards being a bit more clear on where we want to see things and things happen. I think there's a lot of grey within the planning scheme and that then gets down and then you're basically potentially arguing over potentially even quite redundant sort of situations. Um, and I think it makes it a bit clearer for developers and the, like the general community and the public that, all right, this is what's going to happen here in this part. Um, it won't happen mm-hmm. over here. So sort of making it a bit more clearer for everyone to... would be, I reckon, better...
4: Mm. I'd I like to challenge that point, Jess, because a lot of the times councils are very conservative. Right? So with housing, say in Yarra, they are very, very restrictive. Not your fault, Jacob. But <laughs> um, they're very restrictive. So it's good that there's grey areas so people can challenge and hold councils accountable and say, well, look, no, you've, you don't know all this perfect information. Hmm. There's all this extra stuff that you don't know. And I'm not, I'm not bagging the councils because they've got finite resources. And when you think about how much goes in strategic planning, policy, it's not that well resourced. You get a VCAT, people are spending 120000 on on bucks a, on an appeal, and that's not a big appeal. If that money was put towards strategic, imagine the results. So I think it's good. I like grey. Callum, I like grey. I like, I went. I like lots of shades of grey. But but I think it's good to have that debate area.
0: I, I agree. I think that you need to have, and you can't write a policy that meets every single scenario that's ever going to occur. So I think it is necessary that there's some ambiguity, just for pragmatism. But often, there's also situations where. Oh, what does the definition of this particular word mean? And nobody has an answer. And you know, you have to debate with your colleagues for an hour to figure out what your position on something frontage. is. Frontage, frontage. Well, <laughs> I'll, I won't mention anything specifically.
2: Um, so, I probably am not thinking about policy that I'd reform, but more process that I'd reform. I think it is—it's a very complex system planning to, for community to navigate for a mum and dad applicant to navigate I think there's potential and opportunity there to make that a more accessible process for people so if there was anything to be reformed I think that would be quite useful.
1: And how does social media affect your daily working or does it at all?
3: Um, Well I know for so social media um, generally like doesn't really necessarily come up too often but we did have a very extreme example at Borborshire um, previously where we had an application that would, you know, be considered a bit contentious um, outside the area it was in. Um, I think it got to the point of, you know, almost having a decision done. It was advertised The the landowners around this particular um, use were fine with it, um, but it got out on social media. Um, our I think our comms team sort of came around going, hey, what's – What's going on with this? And we're like, oh, yeah, it's just that application. Like, yeah. Um, And then I think the next day we're like, oh, we've got all these objectors. And then the day after that it's like, oh, no, there's a Facebook group. Um, And then it got to the point, I think we had – so admin staff said they had an objection from every state in the country. Um, And turns out you can actually print out a change.org petition. Oh, wow. Because if you have a petition, you have to – for councils – for – you have to um, present them to the governance coordinator. So uh, apparently filled a binder book with objectors. Um, But it got to the council meeting um, and the council were um, happy with our recommendation in regards to it, but it was sort of this idea that what people thought was actually going on was completely different mm. to what was actually being proposed. And was the group
1: mentality exactly. or pack mentality, I should there's say. There's a lot of fake
3: news out there. Oh, yeah. definitely, in regards to this. And I know people were having, like, admin staff were having phone calls and people were like, oh, I, I, like, you know, this is how you object. You give us, you know, where you live, you know, details. What is your objection? Um, and people were like, oh, I don't want these people to find out where you are. And it's like, hang on, there's, like, a hundred obje- objections and one of them, like... Mm. It was a very much. And a big
1: it's thing. amazing how those things can spiral out of control with one piece of information that's incorrect and um, all of a sudden you've got hundreds of people with placards.
4: <laughs> I think populism's great. But anyway, there, there, <laughs> there is FOMO, uh, for people who don't know, Fear of Missing Out.
1: Oh, um, you know what it means, Pete.
4: I and, and, okay, <laughs> Jess. And now JOMO, which uh, is The Joy of Missing
1: Out. Did you make that one up?
4: No, I read it. Yes, oh, I think that's. I, I love that term, Jomo. You know, so, you know. Sometimes you're so pleased you didn't go to that event, or you're so pleased you missed that meeting. Or so, what things are you happy to miss out on in your professional life? A tough question. You don't need to dob anyone in, but uh, what do you think? Was <laughs> it too hard? Do you want a next question? <laughs> Sorry,
3: Keller. Oh, okay. Um, I think for, I guess Jomo would be maybe. Um, having to deal with particular applicants and stuff that can be quite just difficult. Like potentially, like if we sometimes in our area, we might have some that are quite regular and potentially they're just quite staunch. And like, you might ask for something and it's like, no, this is a reasonable question and they will just fight you on it. And it could be something that you think is just, no, this is very simple, like um, just do it. And um, I know some of our, other colleagues at work and generally our upper management sort of deal with those sort of people but it's I guess yeah sort of definitely there's some times when someone might come along and be like no I don't want to deal with you know some lowly band five I want someone more um senior and like well they're going to tell you the same thing I did just you know two days later
4: I think that's one of the skills you learn very early on in the Job, particularly in local government. Yes, you've never worked there, but
3: um, <laughs> but
4: I think you learn very quickly how to how to gauge people. Do you yep. think Do you think it's a fair? Um, yes. Uh, yeah. like, is this person going to be really and drunk? to
2: read people?
4: To read people. Mm. Yeah, do you think?
2: I, I I agree. I think it comes back to that communication as well. I think that active listening is really important and confirming what what's actually sort of under this question. What actually do you really want to know? And yeah, being able to read people, I think, is very important to know where is this conversation gonna lead to?
3: And I could also think there's also sometimes not taking it personally. Like sometimes they might, you know, email your upper management and stuff and then it gets tum-downs to you and it could be just a very like, almost like, I was like, oh, where's this permit at? Like a, a small update. And it's sort of just like, you know, you could you just send it to me? But half the time it's like, hmm, whatever, you've sent it up the line, you're gonna get the response from me anyway. So it's sort of just, yeah.
1: And quite often I think that's, um, you know, pressure from another side. You know, your applicant is probably under a huge amount of pressure to get that permit and if that satisfies their client or their representative, you know. It's just, again, about understanding where people are coming from and um, different pressures.
4: Now, Jess, what about JOMO and you? Do you have JOMO at work?
1: Probably from a similar perspective, I guess, for difficult clients we all have diff- you know like you guys are talking about applicants we would have difficult clients as well um every now and then so i guess that's jomo <laughs> what about you pete there,
4: there's some conferences i'm really pleased to miss out on
1: conferences yes Yeah.
4: and and sometimes a client or a potential client will ring me up and i'll say ah oh, look there could be a conflict of interest i might be doing work for the city of yarra soon so <laughs> They sort of understand that. But look, that's a little secret. Don't tell anyone. Sorry. I suspect for you guys
0: it's a bit different as well because you, like, your job is dependent on clients coming to you. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, like, <laughs> that know, question. It's a, it's a good point
4: because like, typically it's an 80-20 ratio. Like, mm. Probably like what you're Some golden rule applies in life. And you know you're all nodding your heads for like 80 yeah. 20 years so you got 80 mm-hmm. percent of people are fine 20 mm-hmm. percent of people give you 80 percent of your grief yeah is that yeah. what you find yeah yeah,
2: yeah no. i would agree i think um i've got a different perspective because i've done consulting as well as working local government and so i do have that appreciation of mm-hmm. the other side of the counter right. like you said about just um that maybe the 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 consultants contacting you on on their clients behalf yeah, mm. so i think but, that really helps
4: and also you know you've all worked in stat planning i mean two of you currently but it is a very draining process and i do hear about planners getting burnout <laughs> because you're dealing now you're all nodding your heads again um jess you wouldn't know about this but um <laughs> you know so <laughs> any comments? Are out today. <laughs> no, no, no. Any takeaways on this that you know the burnout you get like you get rid of a whole lot of files, and then there's a whole lot of new files coming. And then there's those files that never seem to move.
1: Or oh, that just come back again no. and again and again. <laughs> this is
4: about Yin, so go, please.
0: Yeah, look, maybe maybe it's, maybe it's having a particular personality type helps. Um, but I think that, at least so far, um, just being able to... There are obviously applications where it's, you know, ABC and then it's ABC again, like you're repeating the same process over and over. Um, But then you get something cool that you haven't seen before or something that, you know, I, um, as much as it's annoying sometimes to have to thrash out what something means, um, I sort of enjoy that process as well. Um, So yeah, it's just sort of, maybe it's just I sort of like the work and less of a... um, yeah, I don't know.
2: <laughs> I would agree with um, Jacob that I'm not a stat planner anymore. I did experience that sort of that pressure and that burnout and personality-wise it just didn't suit me to do that long-term. So um, the opportunity came up to move into a strategic team which is more suitable for my personality and my work style. So I think it is quite different um, work, yeah, work styles and can be suitable for different people.
3: Yeah, no, I think you're right in regards that some time personality-wise can be um, in regards to that. But I think I know for me personally coming out from a rural shire is that you get... Your workload is sometimes ridiculously diverse. And I know I've, um, you know, anecdotally had conversations with um, other graduates from uni who have worked in, um, you know, middle-ring sort of suburbs and like, oh, I do res code every day, all day. And sometimes it's like there's some... Currently like some developers that have or architects that have a lockdown on some of the things, so it's the same applicant or the same design over and over and over again. Um, where out where we are, every application half the time is different. It's mm. a new something new to do. Which deal is a with.
1: different kind of challenge in itself.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you get an application and you're like oh, has anyone dealt with this before? And everyone's like, no. Oh, okay, cool. Time to get out myself. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I didn't have that experience of the ABC consistently. It was ABC and then 123 was your next application. It was because it's so diverse, which is really interesting and challenging and you learn and grow a lot from it. It also sort of speeds up the burnout, I guess.
1: Mm. And are there other things um, that you think you need in order to be better planners? Is there additional training or... Other things that you wish you had to improve your skills?
0: I think, honestly, for what we do, um, or for what statutory planners do, I think architecture or some understanding of the building permit process would be very useful because you'll do an application and then, you know, six months later they come back for the amendment because, oh, we didn't realise this, but the floor to ceiling height isn't, you know, we can't get a building permit for this. so i think to it would be useful to be able to say oh hey wait a second just so you know um this might get stalled later in the
3: the process um and i could definitely say in a rural shire um ours would potentially be knowing about agriculture mm. um especially That's when an, an applicant comes back it's like well do you have a you know an in-house agricultural expert?" It's like well, no we maybe send it off to someone but um, I think it's quite fortunate I've I had fam like a uh, family that own a farm so I have some knowledge of how it's sort of how it operates and stuff so um, if someone comes to me and shows me something that I can go oh yeah that sounds about right or I can go no this is not even close to being you know viable or even how you're supposed to do it or something like that so because there's a very different sort of potential skills that you might have to deal with um, at where we are.
4: I'm thinking, just something new. Uh, packets of information. Because you know how we... You know, if I want to learn something, I look up the University of YouTube and, you know, how do you fix this or how do you do this or... Um, but I think there's sort of packets of information like, you know, just baking a busting a lot of myths but also getting you visually attractive mm-hmm. information to tell you about what's going on because you know from i mean i did a long time ago but once you start you start you start and you learn things incrementally or someone tells you or but you're not gaining and because we're a little tech now and that we should be able to have something better than what we've got
2: yeah definitely and i think it comes quite piecemeal as well because I've got an application that deals with this particular native vegetation issue or whatever, that's when you learn about it. Not, you're not bringing that prior knowledge to that application and and you're hoping that somebody else in the pod or, or someone has that access to that information. So I think that would be very helpful.
4: Something visual, something good graphics. It's not hard to make this stuff, Jess, as listeners can go to our website, on the net and see the <laughs> videos that even Jess and I have made together about our, this program. So I think that visual stuff, and I think mm. if it's the time's right to get that. I think the Department of Planning in every state should be more uh, helpful. Do you think?
3: Yeah, I definitely think that that would be good, like, and potentially even for like the general public and something like that. Saying if we get a. You know, have something out there that says, you know, this is how, how you assess a unit development, and then you have an objector come along and maybe has a thousand questions. You can go, hey, look at this video that will help you explain instead of me sitting out with you in the front of our thing trying to explain how to do an assessment over three hours or something like that.
4: Well, well Bayside Council, in, uh, which is a Melbourne suburb for our listeners, has this great series of videos on how to apply for a planning permit. What and then there's another one on public notice. What Are you these do? These
1: little infographic,
4: ones? No, like little videos, and they're great. Mm. And mm. I want to meet these planners because they look so happy, <laughs> and they're very attractive, <laughs> and they're just you know they're just like this is what we do and help us help you,
3: and I just thought what a great series. Yeah, and no, I think we've actually come across those like those videos have been sent to us, or like uh, management have gone, hey, you know, there this potentially you know hey, we could do something like this or something rather to, because mm. it's, yeah. Maybe
1: that could be a little PX thing, Pete. You and I can <laughs> <laughs> act out these videos. I've got a great face <laughs> for radio. Yes, you know you do. So,
3: but,
4: but moving on, so what have you been surprised that you've mastered in your job in this relatively, mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're talking about two years. It's not a long time. Mm-hmm. What, what has surprised you that you've learnt to be able to do or manage that, you thought was pretty daunting once, or maybe there's nothing. Hmm?
0: I think the sort of amount of information that I am that I had to sort of learn and retain um, has surprised me, because it's all well and good to have, you know, the policy in front of you, but then understanding what visual bulk is, um, is another thing. So, yeah, I also, it sort of surprised me the extent to which that is sort of necessary for the job as well. Um, Because sometimes, yeah, things aren't explained in and of themselves. There's a lot more context that you have to know before you can um, actually apply.
3: And uh, say before, um, Peter, how you mentioned um, when you first sort of started out, like having a look at your planning scheme and thinking like, how am I, how do I interpret something like this? I think sort of being able now to just rattle off something off the top, a clause off the top of your head, because you've just seen it that many times to be able to, you know, you know, in a couple of minutes, run around the planning scheme, looking for, you know, where you need to refer something to, or, you know, uses and stuff, like something like that's always been really good. I think that's really helpful
0: for dealing with the public as well, because if you're able to look somebody, if you know the answer to a question, as soon as somebody asks it, you don't have to go away and say, oh, let me, you know, do some research and come back to you. I think it saves a lot of time and it makes people feel a lot more confident, like, in your abilities, particularly when, say, you're dealing with somebody and they, uh, they, they're not... If your applicant isn't confident in your ability to do the assessment uh, and you have to go back to your boss every time they ask a question... I think it sort of becomes a situation oftentimes where they don't respect what you do say when you know what you're, you're talking about.
2: I, I would agree with that. I think um, being adaptable is something that I think I've mastered since becoming a planner. Um, so many different types of applications. you are also got lots of different responsibilities internally. You're doing different... Roles different days, whether it's duty or you're writing um, writing reports, things like that. So I think being very adaptable and managing your time is important. Well, I think it's an outstanding
4: thing that many planners don't get flustered because they can deal with lots of different situations, mm-hmm. and they know the structure. and How do I break this down? How do I look for help? You know, wh- what's the essence of this proposal? What should I be cautious of? Is that what you? you yeah. Know, or or the, you know. What do I need to look for?
2: Yes, yeah, I think sort of and, and that sort of comes continues to come back to that communication with the with the applicant or whoever's doing the proposal mm. I think.
1: And so in this day and age it's rare to experience peace and calm. How do you find this space outside of work?
2: Well Boba is very lovely and green. So <laughs> it's it's quite a nice place to be and to work and to find that space. But I think um, mindfulness cooking things like that to really disconnect using your hands something that's completely opposite for planning is where where i find it
3: i could definitely say i think there's a bit of just sort of switching off so just say all right work's over don't want to think about it just switch off go to a hobby or um something like that to sort of take your mind off it and sort of focus on something else because
4: it can get to you can't it and you take it personally a lot i mean I don't know, if something goes wrong for me and and someone's, not that they're rude to me, but I take it personally. Yeah. And it does affect you. I mean, we are humans, yeah. Uh,
3: yeah, I'd probably say that, yeah, sometimes you can somewhat take it personally if you feel like it's, like, your fault or something like that That's an outcome has occurred or if something like that. You can, yeah, sometimes sort of take it personally. But, yeah, I think you have to sort of go back to be like, all right, how can I... How can I learn from this? How can I, like, rectify it or something like that? And your that.
4: team is very good about that, isn't it? I mean, your team is a essential support for you. Hmm? Yeah, definitely.
0: I think definitely, and sort of going back to what we were saying before, I think being able to sort of switch off and go, okay, I'm not going to think about anything to do with work or any planning at the moment um, is pretty important.
4: Right, Jess, podcast extra. Now, this is where we ask our guests uh, what have they been listening to, reading, watching uh, recently that they've enjoyed. It doesn't have to be about planning.
2: To, well, to follow on from the last question, to really switch off, um, listening to a podcast, uh, Chat 10 Looks 3 with Annabelle Crab and Lee Sales, which I find very opposite of planning and can really disconnect.
0: Yeah, I also, um, listening to the back catalogue of a podcast, um, it's pretty well known, um, it's called the worst idea of all time, and it's these two Kiwi comedians, and they rewatch a film every week for a year, and then sort of do a podcast on it, and slowly go insane over the course of <laughs> fifty-two weeks.
3: Um, I'd suppose mine is uh, depends on who you are if you find it um, an escape or something else. Is the uh, case file podcast um, done by the anonymous host who is Australian, so it um, looks at sort of true crime um, i'm a fan don't i yeah <laughs> so yeah um every so often they uh release a podcast which goes into a particular case um sort of um going through um i guess yeah what sort of happened and then the subsequent um generally police investigation into um you know hopefully finding the uh perpetrator well, what about you jess
1: well, I was inspired by um, our, one of our previous guests, Mark Marsden, to read the book about William Buckley, which is where the term Buckley's Chance came incredible from. Incredible story, so, yes. Incredible story. What about you, Pete?
4: Uh, I went to Moonlight Cinema for the first time ever. Oh, wow. Uh, last Saturday and saw uh, I Wanted to See uh, Little Women, uh, <laughs> a book that I've, I'd never actually read and didn't know much about, but I love uh, swirling dresses and things why like that. How did
1: you end up there? I No, I just, well,
4: I'm trying to... The, branch you know, I try to branch out, yeah. I saw <laughs> 1917, the week before, and that was quite – I think I needed Little Women after 1917. That was pretty brutal.
1: Yeah, I saw um, that as well.
4: Because my grandfather was over in France at that time. And so seeing all those things, I thought, well, they little did Little Women uh, it is. Little Women it was. But, but Jess, the reason i raised that is because it's in the Botanic Gardens, listeners, and it's um, it's very weather-dependent, obviously, but they there's – The screen is blown up and it's so well organised but what it made me think about was how underutilised our public land is and you cannot get a permit to do commercial events in public land. Basically it's impossible to do it Uh, and we need to unlock what is public land for a lot more commercial activities as long as it's with a light footprint but there's so many festivals or I'm not talking about doof doof festivals guys <laughs> you, which you would attend no doubt <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. so i'm not talking about the sort of crazy rave parties you want to go to but just a lot of other things that we could use public land there's enormous amount of entrepreneurship out there to take advantage of these things so i think we need to of course things are always going to go wrong in some places but it's going to go right a lot of times i think we need to any comments with any thoughts
2: um, comment. I I agree with that, and I think it, it builds support in the community as well. So you've got community groups that want to hold markets and things like that, that just yeah need that support to be able to enable that to happen and raise funds for their whatever group that they're representing. So I agree.
3: And I definitely know that like out now where we are. I've just mentioned it before. We have a large amount of state forest um, and generally now it's mainly unregulated so it might be hunting season also there might be uh, people that go up and do that but that land is quite vast and could be used for many different things and I know it is definitely used for some of those sort of events now but maybe I guess opening that up to more to you know advertising that more to the you know wider community and bringing more people out I know especially areas such as like East Gippsland now um, sort of you know, having good events on and stuff like that to, you know, bring more people out into the regions.
4: Hmm. Well, Jess, this has been a wonderful, refreshing interview. I've got great confidence in the future of planning with the with the stars that we've just <laughs> interviewed. What do you think, Jess?
1: 100%. percent very, very confident. All right.
4: And listeners, um, we would refer you to the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we're a part of. It's a wonder- wonderful curated list of podcasts produced in Australia. And uh, thanks to you charming, wonderful three young planners and always to Jess. Thank you.